Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. I love horror movies. I have ever since I was a kid too young to be watching them. I remember when I was around eight or nine, there was one movie I caught on TV that scared me silly. It was an old made-for-TV movie called Bad Ronald, and the short version of the plot goes that there was this mentally disturbed teenager who lived in a huge house with his mother, who was the center of his universe. But when his mother died suddenly and left him all alone, the boy, Ronald, moved into the gaps between the walls and kept living there, even after a new family moved into the house. Of course, the new family had a pretty young teenage daughter, and as Ronald watched her through the peepholes he'd carved in the walls, he became more and more obsessed with her, until finally, in the end, he decides to burst out of the walls and take her captive. Now, I haven't seen the movie since I was a kid, and I'm sure it's a lot less scary now than it is in my memory. But I do recall having more than a few nights back then where it was difficult to fall asleep, because I was convinced someone was living inside the walls of my own house and watching me. But things like that don't happen in real life, do they? On October 17, 1941, a Denver couple became worried when their 73-year-old neighbor, Philip Peters, failed to show up for dinner. Peters was home alone at the time, while his wife was in the hospital recuperating from a broken hip. So the couple had offered to provide him a home-cooked meal and some company. By the next day, when they still hadn't heard from Peters, the couple called the police to go check on him. Police went to the house and found all the doors and windows locked, and inside they found Philip Peters' murdered body. He'd been bludgeoned to death. Police searched the house and found no one inside, and with all the doors and windows locked, it appeared to be an impossible crime. The proverbial locked room mystery straight out of a detective story. Things grew worse when Peter's wife got out of the hospital and began living in the home with a housekeeper. Throughout the day and night, the two of them heard strange noises in the house. Odd rustlings and creaking floorboards, mysterious thumps from rooms where no one was. Neighbors and other passers-by began claiming they saw something moving in the house when no one was home. Rumors began to circulate through the neighborhood that Philip Peter's spirit was haunting the home where he'd been murdered. The housekeeper got fed up and moved out, and soon after, so did Mrs. Peters, who moved to the western part of Colorado to live with her son. Police continued the investigation, and they stopped by the house periodically in order to observe the premises and see if there was anything to the rumors the nervous neighbors were spreading. And on one July evening in 1942, nine months after Peter's murder, officers stationed across the street saw someone, or something, peeking out a window. The police officers raced inside and searched the house. One of them heard a click coming from the attic and he dashed upstairs. He got there just in time to see a pair of human legs pulling into a small trap door about the size of a cigar box. The trap door led to a hidden closet, and inside that closet they found a 59-year-old homeless man named Theodore Edward Conies. 
police arrested Conies, and he soon made a full confession. He hadn't just been living in the closet. He'd been living there since committing the murder nine months before. He had been an acquaintance of Peter's some 30 years earlier. In September of 1941, he showed up at Peter's home hoping to beg for some money. When he found the house empty, he snuck inside and helped himself to some food. Then he snooped around for a while and found the trap door with a tiny hidden closet behind. Fearing that he'd freeze to death with the coming winter, Tony's secretly moved in. A few weeks later, Philip Peters stumbled across his surprise guest, and Coney's murdered him in order to maintain his secret. The newspapers dubbed him the Spider-Man for his ability to squeeze into such a narrow space. Makes you think about all the dark little nooks and crannies in your own home, doesn't it? Try thinking about that tonight when you go to sleep. Pleasant dreams. I'm Nate Hale, hiding under the covers trying to ignore the strange noises coming from inside my closet. And this is The Conspirators. Back in 1922, just outside of Groburn, Bavaria, was a farm located in the woods called Hinterkaifeck. The farm was occupied by a well-off family called the Grubers, which consisted of the father, 63-year-old Andreas, his 72-year-old wife, Cazelia, their 35-year-old widowed daughter, Victoria, and her two children, 7-year-old Cazelia and 2-year-old Joseph. Andreas Gruber was the family patriarch, and he was, by all accounts, the most disliked man for miles around. Gruber had a reputation as an unfriendly loner, as well as a wife and child beater. There was also a rumor that his youngest grandchild, Joseph, was actually his son, the product of an incestuous relationship with his daughter Victoria, whose husband reportedly died in World War I more than five years earlier. Victoria claimed Joseph was the product of an affair she'd had with a local man named Lorenz Schlittenbauer, but no one in town believed it. Not even Schlittenbauer, but more about that later. For the most part, the Grubers were a pretty reclusive clan. This was made easier by the remoteness of the farm, which was separated from the nearest town of Kaifek by the woods all around. The name, Hinterkaifek, quite literally translates to Behind Kaifek. The only member of the family anyone from the area knew very well or had anything particularly nice to say about was Victoria, who sang in the church choir and had a remarkably beautiful singing voice. Problems began around the house in October 1921, when the maid abruptly quit her job, voicing her desire to leave the farm immediately. When asked why, the maid told the family she'd been hearing strange voices and other peculiar noises throughout the house, including footsteps that appeared to be emanating from the attic. She was convinced the house was haunted, and she refused to stay there any longer. The Grubers let her go, chalking up her stories as the rantings of a disturbed mind. They were better off without her, they thought. Who would want a crazy woman like that around their children? About six months later, in March of 1922, Andreas was surveying his property after a snowstorm when he discovered a set of strange footprints in the snow that originated in the thick forest nearby and ended right at the house. He couldn't find any footprints that actually led away from the house either. Andreas was concerned there might be an intruder on his property, but he searched everywhere, including the barn and tool shed, and found nothing. 
Andreas told his neighbors about the footprints he'd found and asked them if they'd seen any strangers skulking about, but none of them had. That very same night, Andreas was woken from a deep sleep by strange and unidentifiable noises coming from the attic. Remembering how he'd laughed off the maid as a superstitious fool, he went up there to search, but found no one hiding there. He returned to bed, but when he awoke the next morning, he was startled to find a strange newspaper on his front porch that no one in his family recognized. Later that month, on March 30th, a set of keys to the house mysteriously disappeared and could not be found anywhere. Andreas also discovered a series of scratches on the lock to the tool shed, as if someone had been trying to pick it. On Friday, May 31st, 1922, a new maid named Maria Baumgartner came to the house to replace the previous maid who quit, in what has to be one of the worst cases of bad timing in history. You see, Maria's first day on the job would also prove to be her last. It would also be the last day anyone would see any member of the Gruber family alive. On Saturday, April 1st, young Kazelia failed to show up for school. The next day, the entire family failed to show up for church, which was especially strange for Victoria, who sang in the choir and had never missed church once as far as anyone could remember. On Tuesday, April 4th, the postman arrived on Gruber's doorstep and was surprised to see yesterday's mail still sitting there on the porch untouched. He went back to town and told some people what he'd found. A search party went to the farm, and at first everything seemed normal, although perhaps a little too quiet. The only sound in the eerie silence was the crunch of their feet in the thin crust of snow covering the frozen ground. They shouted Gruber's name, but nobody answered. They went inside the barn first, and there they discovered a horror show. Lying in a pool of blood were the bodies of Andreas, his wife, his daughter Victoria, and the eldest daughter, Cazelia. They were stacked carefully on top of each other and covered in a pile of straw, with a wooden door laying on top of everything else. The horrified searchers went into the house next, dreading the worst. There they found the new maid, Maria, lying dead in a pool of blood in her own bedroom. After, they found the body of two-year-old Joseph in his mother's bedroom, lying in the cot where he normally slept. The townspeople called the police, and within hours the Munich police were on the scene searching for clues. The evidence they began to piece together created a scenario that only raised more disturbing questions. A preliminary autopsy showed that all the victims had been killed by blows to the head from what appeared to be a pickaxe or a mattock. Although the detectives were unable to locate the murder weapon anywhere, whoever had done it appeared to have known what they were doing, too because in most cases the skulls had been crushed instantly. The daughter, Victoria, showed signs of strangulation as well, although her cause of death was given as the blow to the head. The coroner said that death was immediate for all the victims except for Cazelia, who showed evidence of having survived for several hours before succumbing to her wounds. Investigators noted that she had apparently torn several tufts of hair from her head before death. Most of the victims were dressed in bedclothes, except for young Cazelia and Victoria, which indicated the attacks had occurred sometime in the evening around bedtime. Investigators believe the killer had led the victims out to the barn one by one and dispatched them as they entered. They theorized since Victoria and Cazelia were still dressed in normal clothes, Victoria probably went out there first, then Cazelia followed to find out what had happened to her mother. When both of them failed to return, Andreas probably went out there next, 
and finally Andreas's wife. After all those members of the family were dead, the killer then went into the farmhouse to dispatch the maid and the little boy. All this would be disturbing enough on its own. But after the coroner determined the date of death had been Friday, March 31st, investigators realized that evidently whoever killed the family had continued living there in the house for several days after. Detectives questioned the neighbors and found witnesses who claimed to have seen smoke coming from the chimney for days. Inside the house were signs that someone had been eating meals there after the family was already dead, and one of the beds showed signs that someone had been recently sleeping in it. Also, all the livestock on the farm had been well-fed and cared for. Whoever had done it knew their way around a farm. The family dog, although barking and visibly shaken, had also been carefully tied up and cared for in the barn. Unfortunately for investigators, people had been tromping all over the scene all day before they got there. Mind you, this was in the 1920s and crime scene analysis was still in its infancy. So who knows what evidence they could have found anyway. For investigators, it was difficult enough to fathom what could drive a person to perform such a vicious and cold-blooded crime. But for the person to actually continue living in the house alongside the bodies as if nothing was wrong seems like the height of madness. At first, police thought robbery might be a possible motive. But inside the house, they found a large amount of cash and valuable jewelry that remained untouched. Curiously, they did learn that Victoria had cleaned out her bank account a few weeks earlier and left a 700 gold mark donation to her church. But the rest of her money remained unaccounted for. Ruling out robbery as a motive, police then considered that it might have been a crime of passion. Suspicion fell upon Loren Schlittenbauer, the man Victoria claimed was Joseph's father. Police believe Schlittenbauer may have lashed out in jealous anger over Victoria's incestuous relationship with her father. There was even a financial component to this theory, since apparently Victoria had been considering suing Schlittenbauer for child support payments for young Joseph. Schlittenbauer was already remarried at that point, and he'd had another son, who died at a young age. It probably would have been infuriating to him to have to pay alimony for a son he wasn't even certain was his. Schlittenbauer further raised suspicions by his behavior on the farm on the day of the murder. As it turns out, he had been part of the initial search party, and others in the party noticed that the dog tied up in the barn took a particular dislike to the man as soon as he went inside. Not only that, but Schlittenbauer seemed strangely calm as he moved the wooden door and each of the bodies aside. When asked what he was doing, he told the others he was looking for his boy. Then, after Schlittenbauer couldn't find Joseph in the pile, did something else very curious. He took a key from his pocket and unlocked the door to the kitchen. Remember, Gruber had told people he had lost a set of keys weeks earlier. All this was enough to put him toward the top of the list of suspects, but although his actions were suspicious, police had no real evidence to arrest the man. One other theory some people had was that Victoria's husband, Carl Gabriel, killed them all. Although it was widely believed he had died in World War I, Gabriel's body was never recovered. Some people believed he may have faked his death, only to change his mind at some point and return home to find that Victoria had a son with another man, causing him to snap and kill them all in a jealous rage. But that's all the story is, just a theory. There's just no evidence to show that Carl Gabriel didn't die in the war as most people believed. So where does that leave us? With few good suspects and so many unanswered questions, why had the killer remained in the house for nearly a week after? 
Why were the animals so well taken care of? If the original maid had been correct in hearing signs of occupation months before, does that mean the killer had been living undetected inside the home for six months? And if that's even remotely possible, why? And why wait until that day to murder them all? Could the new maid have detected the hidden intruder and he was forced to act before she revealed him? The investigation went on for years and police looked at more than 100 suspects but made no arrests. The bodies were buried in a graveyard in Weidhofen, but they were buried without their heads, which were sent to a lab in Munich for further analysis. There's even a rumor police called in a psychic to try to take a clairvoyant reading from the skulls, but I couldn't find anything further to confirm that. Nothing ever came of the lab tests, and the skulls were never returned. Sometime during World War II, the skulls were lost in all the chaos. About a year after the murders, the farm was demolished. It was as if the town was trying to wipe the entire memory of the terrible things that happened there away. As workmen ripped apart the barn, they found something the police had never been able to recover. A murder weapon. Inside a secret compartment in the barn's hayloft, they found the mattock that had killed them all. It was secreted away in such a location that almost certainly only someone with personal knowledge of the farm would have known to put it there. But who? Add one more mystery to the list. The farm is long gone, but currently there's a small shrine nearby marking the events that happened on the location. In 2007, a group of students at the Munich Police Academy were given the Hinterkaifeck murders as a test case for them to solve using modern technology and detection methods. They eventually came away declaring the case to be unsolvable due to lack of evidence. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. If you enjoy the show, please download us on iTunes and leave us a review. We're also always available on our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. We're also available on Stitcher and the Google Play Store. Thanks for listening.